All right. This morning we are going to be starting in uh, the seventh chapter of John. This chapter kind of, uh, the first part of it anyway, uh, it's got some interesting um, dialogue. So we're kind of going to flesh out a little bit about uh, possibly what's going on uh, in the uh, in a discussion here, primarily between, uh, most of it anyway, between Jesus and his brothers. But let's, uh, I want to read the uh, first nine verses. It says, after these things, these things, by the way, being Jesus uh, discussing in the seven, a sixth chapter about him being the, the bread of life, uh, and then some of his uh, disciples, not his apostles, but some of his disciples decided that that was a bit too much, and uh, so they departed. So that's the after these things uh, that uh, the seventh chapter opens up with. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may uh, also may see your works, which you are doing. Verse 4, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So uh, if we kind of uh, pick up in verse 5 there, uh, this passage really openly states that Jesus' own relatives, his brothers, didn't even believe in him. You know, this, the fact of that is really kind of initially surprising, but it also offers some valuable insight for us as well. You know, it was no doubt pretty painful uh, for Jesus to face disbeliefs disbelief from those that were closest to him. And that likely probably caused a little bit of distress among his committed disciples, his, his apostles. You know, because you look at the situation, his brothers didn't believe him, but they believed in him. And, you know, did their thought, the apostles, did they think, well, gosh, if his brothers don't even believe in who he is, that could be a stumbling block. Um, but, uh, but it doesn't go into that, uh, that uh, uh, possibility there. But you have to recognize that uh, was Jesus distressed a little bit because his own brothers didn't even believe in him? But we'll, we'll kind of deal with that. Um, but this incident also supplies us with lessons and, and some implications as well. The first is that familiarity with Christ does not guarantee belief. It's possible to know a whole lot about Christ, his teachings, the gospel, yet still lack faith in him. 
And we often see examples of disbelief that are understandable, okay? Like those who rely on secondhand information, you know, opinions of others, uh, or, or those that might be influenced by their own ignorance about who Jesus is. And it's not surprising that people like the rulers, the scribes, Pharisees in Jerusalem, were, uh, they were fixed in their own ways, and they didn't have a problem at all rejecting Jesus because he didn't fit their, um, their agenda. But it is surprising to learn that Jesus' own relatives, who knew him intimately, had plenty of opportunities to understand his character and, and his claims, and yet still lacked faith. You know, if, if, if you are, picture yourself in that family situation, whether you were a, a, a physical brother uh, uh, or, or a relative, and, and seeing this um, scenario uh, unfold, it probably, let's face it, it would be difficult sometimes to understand. Here is your own brother, whether they knew he was a half-brother or not, uh, probably not. Uh, they, they considered him their full brother. Uh, they didn't have knowledge of the Holy Spirit uh, hovering over their mother. So they grew up with him, and then all of a sudden he claims to be the Son of God. I mean, let's face it. That would be, it's, it's difficult. That, you know, it, it's not, um, uh, it, it's not a, a total dilemma on our part. Would you believe it? You know, if, if one of your relatives all of a sudden claimed to be somebody that was supernatural. Um, it's, um, and I'm not talking about somebody with a Jesus complex, okay? I'm not dealing with, with that. Uh, but I'm talking about somebody who really believes that they are the Son of God. Uh, so, uh, you know, put yourself in that situation there. And, and it kind of helps to uh, put a little bit of flesh on the bones here. Uh, but this issue really is not confined to biblical times it's it's uh, here for not you know not that Jesus is alive and walking with us today but in the idea of uh, faith in Jesus that's kind of what we're talking about here there are some who despite having uh, you know being really knowledgeable in the scriptures and seeing Christian character in their friends or relatives yet remain indifferent or faithless towards Christ himself so what are some of the reasons why people uh, reject Christ? You know, despite their familiarity, and we're not talking about somebody that's, you know, uh, that is uh, outside of the realm of our, uh, our circle of influence <laughs> that, uh, that we talk about once in a while. Uh, but someone that is um, within or, you know, close to uh, other Christians, you know, within the, within the families, within the community. What are some of the reasons why they would reject Christ? Well, in some cases, they might be too familiar with someone that, that could actually hinder their faith. And this was evident in Nazareth, okay, when Jesus grew up. The locals, very familiar with Jesus, couldn't reconcile his ordinary upbringing with his amazing claims, as we kind of dealt with a little while ago. So this principle, it can apply today too, where familiarity with Christian teaching doesn't necessarily promote faith. 
someone can know, uh, and you know this, uh, in the Old Testament, or not Old Testament, uh, New Testament times, the scribes are a perfect example of that. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. Uh, they, they were what that profession has morphed into lawyers today, uh, whatever you think of lawyers. Um, and, and I'm not bashing lawyers, but I'm, what I'm saying is they knew the law. The scribes were the present-day lawyers. They, they knew the law, and that's how uh, the name lawyer, lawyer uh, came about. So they knew a lot about um, the Old Testament, but that didn't help. I'm not saying all scribes didn't, uh, you know, that none of them became Christians. I don't know. It doesn't really talk too much about it. But, but they were intimately involved, intimately aware, intimately knowledgeable about the Old Testament. And that did not give them a leg up, so to say, on, uh, uh, on Christianity or their faith. Another possible reason is worldliness or what we might refer to as spiritual laziness. For some, you know, this worldly mindset and spiritual dullness create a barrier to faith in Christ. These are the ones that might be close to Christian teaching, but are too entrenched in everyday concerns to really engage themselves deeply with Christ's message. Uh, they might know a lot of scriptures. They, they might know a lot of... Um, uh, concepts. The um, I know that uh, there was a, a woman that we had worked with when we lived in Maryland. Uh, she um, she knew a lot of scriptures. She knew a lot of scriptures, and uh, I mean very impressive knowledge of scriptures. Uh, but um, but it didn't help her faith. She 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 knew a lot of scriptures, and that was. That was as far as she could go. She thought that for some reason it seemed like that that was all that she needed. So it was a barrier to her progressing on because she had what she had assumed or maybe she was getting accolades from those around her. You really know a lot of scriptures. Uh, and that was, that was a barrier for her. She couldn't go past that. Um, she had other issues as well, but that was, uh, that was certainly, uh, it, it seemed apparent that that was holding her back. Now, those type of people sometimes may resist anything that challenges their, their comfort zone. Uh, anything that demo demands maybe a little bit of a higher level of commitment, spiritual commitment on their part, that they're not willing to take that, that, uh, that next step. And some of the, another reason that someone may uh, resist uh, uh, their faith in Christ is the influence from others. They're, they may be more influenced by the disbelief or indifference of their peers than by the positive examples of the faith in the people that are around them. And you know, you know. By the way, as a side note, it does uh, it does you know when you look at scriptures. His brothers, obviously, as time goes along, did uh, convert over, at least a couple of them that we know of, uh, hence the book of James and Jude, which were um, uh, historically uh, Jesus' physical brothers, as well as disciples. 
So, uh, but many today might base their, uh, their disbelief on the attitudes and grounds uh, on those around them rather on, than on a personal understanding of who Christ is. They would rely on others. Maybe they're, they're, you know, they're held back by the peers that are around them that, that, you know, that somehow you would be um, looked down upon or uh, you'd be made fun of uh, by your friends and peers uh, that if, if you made that extra step and uh, got a closer relationship, your faith actually grew in Christ. So that would be uh, one possible way, another possible way that someone would be held back from their faith in Christ. So some of the lessons that we, you know, from the unbelief of Christ's relatives, what do we, what do we learn from that? Uh, well, that, the, you know, the limitations of the, privileges around us can actually um, hinder, if you will. Just being close to Christian teaching today um, or, or the church does not guarantee faith. Let's face it, if being Jesus' relative, his physical brother wasn't enough for faith, simple association with the church won't do for us either. Uh, these, these, these people, you know, these brothers grew up with him. It doesn't really say how much younger they were. Obviously, Jesus was the firstborn. So they were his younger brothers, um, but they knew him all their life. You know, they, they grew up with him. So just being close to, uh, to Jesus isn't enough uh, back then, and it is not enough for us today to just be associated with the church. So the need for a, a very deep and personal relationship with Christ is really what's necessary. You know, it is good to know about Christianity, but the ultimate goal is really a deep personal faith and a relationship with Christ. You know, it's been said before, uh, you know, someone will say, well, I know about Christ. That's, why, that's great, but does Christ know about you? Uh, you know, that's, that, that's, the other, that's the other thing. Knowledge should lead to faith. It should lead to fellowship and a transformation of character on our part. Um, but it wasn't so all the time. You know, like, like I mentioned earlier, the scribes. Just because you have a knowledge about Christianity, uh, it takes a little bit more than that uh, to, um, uh, to really have a, a strong faith in him. Knowledge and faith are two different things. Knowledge comes first. And then through that, faith is supposed to grow. So that what's the consequences of rejecting Christ? Okay, well, I think we know ultimately what the consequences are. But non-believing in Christ means rejecting him on all of his uh, claims, whether it be prophet, priest, king. Uh, you're rejecting all of those. And by not placing faith in him, then what happens is we forfeit the spiritual and valuable blessings that he offers and only he can offer. So uh, it's important for us to, uh, to recognize that our faith has to grow in Christ. All right, so let's move on to uh, verse 6. Uh, verse 6 says, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. So in this verse here, we kind of dive into Jesus' unique relationship with time. As he states here, my time is not yet come. And it shows several ways in how Jesus interacted and managed time during his earthly uh, journey here. 
First off, he was subject to time. Jesus never jumped out in and out of time, okay? While he was in the physical body, um, he, uh, he was subject to time. But he was also very aware of what was going on around him. As time was moving along, Jesus was aware of the surroundings, what was, what was going on in the, 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 the physical world, the spiritual, as well as the physical and the political uh, goings on. So he was aware of all of those events and, and the prominent individuals uh, and how those factors intersected with what his ministry was, uh, was here uh, to accomplish. So he carefully planned all of his actions to align with the earthly elements that, uh, that I just mentioned. And it really is a demonstration of his wisdom about what was, what was going on on his part. But he was also a manager of time. Uh, and how he valued it. You know, when you consider that Jesus, uh, his minute, he lived here for about a little over 33 years, best we can figure, but his ministry was three years. You know, today, you can't even get through college in three years. You know, it, that, that's, I mean, you can, but it's a lot of work. Uh, three years is not a long time. Yet he fulfilled his ministry in three years. We're going on five years back here in Michigan. It, and that's, you know, we, we were in Great Falls three years. It seems like a, a, a short amount of time, three years. His, min, his total ministry was three years. How much he accomplished in that time, and that's the time that we're talking about here, Jesus says his time was not yet at hand. All right. So Jesus understood how precious time was. He had a very limited period to accomplish his enormous task. He used every moment effectively, recognizing the importance of each second as it went by. Specific timing for his actions. He, his actions were never random. Each miracle, each teaching, each action was carefully timed for the maximum impact that it could have on this audience. Each one of, his, of those actions fit perfectly into the broader context of the events that, uh, that he was orchestrating. He was aware of timing, very aware of the right time for every action, and never acting prematurely or too late. You know, there's only one instance that I can think of, and that is the, uh, the turning of the, wine, uh, the water into wine, when Jesus um, gently reminds his mom, you know, my time is really not yet. Um, uh, but we see that he went ahead, uh, and it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm only missing it by a week, but let's go ahead and go it. Uh, I don't have any idea, but for some reason or not, uh, or not whatever the reason was, you know, Jesus says, my, not, my time is yet, not yet, but, uh, but he kicked it off. <coughs> so anyway, his timeliness was really a mark <coughs> of his ministry, and it, it really reflects his mastery over the time frame that he had to work in. So let's kind of contrast Jesus' timing with his brothers. See, his brothers were pretty eager, and, uh, but Jesus had his own time frame. 
his brothers were, they were always ready to act, okay? But Jesus' timing was dictated by a broader, very divine uh, schedule. Um, you know, human, we have a tendency to be impatient. You know, what, what, what's the hamburger place? We want it hot, we want it now. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, uh, that's the way we are, right? Uh, but see, God has perfect timing. There, from a human standpoint, we have a self-interest. But Jesus is working on the general good for mankind here. His brothers were motivated by immediate, self-serving goals. Uh, and if we have time, I'll give a couple of ideas anyway of the of the possible reasons why. Uh, his brothers wanted him to go up to uh, the feast uh, early. But we'll deal with that in a little while. But in contrast, Jesus' actions were guided by spiritual, divine principles aimed at humankind's overall well-being. It, it, he had a mission to accomplish, and he, he, he would not, he could not uh, rush that. It had, to be, uh, it had to be a certain... Uh, it, it had to culminate in, uh, um, in God's ultimate plan. So we basically, with his brothers, we have unbelief uh, on their part, faith on Jesus' part. The brothers' unbelief led to their impatience uh, and a desire for a very immediate, tangible uh, results. They're looking for something from Jesus uh, to... Um, um, uh, to, if you will, maybe verify, validate uh, his ministry. You know, it's, it's like, as a possibility, uh, they're saying, look, it, and I'm putting words in their mouth, so kind of bear with me. It's, it's like, okay, if you are who you say you are, let's, uh, let, go ahead and prove it. Go ahead and go down uh, uh, to the feast and uh, let's get it on, okay? It, it's kind of like, you know, it's not an egging him on, but it's like they're, they're in, in a sense, asking for uh, a little bit of proof on, on his part. But he's not ready for that yet. And, and, I'll, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. So what are the kind of the lessons to learn here? Uh, in in Jesus' in sense here is mistaken friends and they uh, friends or brothers in this particular part but in our case it could be mistaken friends uh, they can be as challenging as foes or enemies see Jesus faced challenges not only from his enemies but also from well-meaning but misguided friends and family you know example would be Peter in the garden uh, of Gethsemane He's ready to cross swords. He's a fisherman. He's ready to cross swords with professional warriors. Does that make any sense? You know, so he is, it's like, we can get ahead of ourselves. Uh, you know, he's trying to protect Christ, who didn't need any protection, by the way. Uh, but he is ready to, you know, jump in the ring with with people that do this for a profession. Uh, and it it got squashed real quick, you know, which is a good thing. 
So timeliness here also increases effectiveness. And that's what we're going to see with with, uh, Christ's actions here. His teachings, his actions were always timely, proving that, you know, the right word or deed at the right time has a greater impact than something that's botched together and like, let's go with this, you know, know, uh, uh, driven by the seat of our pants, by intuition. Christ had very specific uh, timing and had very specific goals, and he was not going to have any, he's not going to uh, do anything because someone else urges him, even if it's his brother uh, that um, is going to urge him. He's going he's to resist, he's going to hold back. So, um, you know, a um, couple, or last week uh, in uh, Wednesday evening, uh, Jerry made a comment uh, that he says, you know, in our prayers, sometimes when we get an answer, uh, no doesn't mean no, it just means not yet uh, when, when we, you know, pray for something. So uh, sometimes what we are looking for might not, it, it might be a good thing, and God says, yeah, okay, no problem, but hold on a minute, you know, uh, I, something else has got to happen first, or you're not ready, or something, or the answer isn't ready yet, Okay. So we've got to align our time with Jesus. Uh, and, and faith is essential on that part. We have to recognize that, like, if the answer is uh, yes, but not yet, okay, our faith has to allow us to, to be okay with that. Uh, that, um, uh, that God does hear our When we pray, do we really have faith that God hears our prayer? Uh, does it, does it really resonate with us that he hears us? Because a caring father, a loving father that has granted us eternal life, is he just going to ignore us between now and then? You know, until from from now until the time that we die, and then we go to go to see him face to face. Or is he going to be attentive to our needs in between? So our faith in our prayers has to. Uh, uh, has to be there in that when we pray for something diligently and align with uh, God's will, that he will answer us. So our, that goes along with our timing. Trusting in him ensures that we are in step with his divine schedule. It, uh, again, he has a divine schedule for our lives as well. So let's go on to verse 7. I want to get to verse 7. 7 I'll read again. 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. All right? So so Christ here is witness against sin. That's, that's what uh, when he says, I testify against it. In this verse here, Jesus is speaking about the world's hatreds towards him. And he indicates that the world includes not just the secular society, but probably more importantly in his case, those within the religious circles, particularly the leaders of those, uh, uh, of those religious uh, organizations. Those were the ones that really opposed him. So how does Jesus, how did he confront sins in the world? Well, first off, two ways first off through his words jesus is known as you know for his compassion towards repentant sinners okay but he was also firm in condemning the sins of deceit 
greed, cruelty, immorality. And his harshest criticisms were reserved for those who committed the sins under the appearance of religious holiness. Those are the ones, uh, you know, the, the eight woes. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Those are the ones that uh, proclaimed outwardly the appearance of uh, holiness. And secondly, not only through his words, but also through his actions. You know, oftentimes a righteous life is the most powerful display against wrongdoing. Jesus' life, evident by his integrity, his holiness, stood as a constant silent rebuke to those that were living hypocritically around him. His, his presence, his dignified presence, in, in, uh, was always a challenge to both his supporters and his adversaries. Uh, you know, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 21, says that he came to give us an example of how it is that we should live. That example can be a, uh, it can be a witness uh, for Christ, but it, all, it can also be a rub against those that um, take offense at, um, at your lifestyle. So the hatred uh, towards him was caused by his condemnation of sin. You know, there's an internal moral conflict uh, that's caused by, uh, you know, in, in, in people that are wrongdoing and in, in, in the evil. So Jesus rebukes, and you know, he very, very much shook the, the conscience uh, of sinners. And their pride, their selfish um, lifestyle, that resisted his teaching. When, when they are so entrenched in that, that internal struggle that they, were, that they go through leads sinners, led them, and today, to be further um, entrenched in that evil so that you know, their, their conscience is seared over by the continued evil that they continue to practice um, by, uh, by that, that conflict that's going on inside their, their head. So what do they result in? Uh, how do they respond to that? Well, they're going to attack the, um, the messenger, right? You know, we have a saying today, don't shoot the messenger. Well, they didn't have a problem with that. Uh, they, you know, well, they, they didn't have guns, but they, they can certainly nail him to a cross. So in response to Jesus' accusations, his enemies, what did they do? They, used, they resorted to slander, labeling him a sinner, a deceiver, even demon-possessed. Can you imagine God, you're, you're accusing God of being demon-possessed? So in a, if Jesus hadn't confronted their sins, he might have avoided their hostility, probably would have. Uh, but his integrity and honesty provoked their hatred even more. It was just a, it was just a constant grind uh, on them. So what happened? Plotting Jesus' death was a result of their actions. You know, the, the clear, the spiritual teaching of Jesus threatened their influence on the, uh, you know, over, the, uh, over the masses. Their fear of losing control and power led to the conspiracy to eliminate him altogether. Um, and obviously led to his eventual arrest and then crucifixion. But what's really interesting about this, you know, where that led... It's, it's ironic in a sense 
that the world's hatred for Jesus, fueled by his stand against sin, became the very catalyst for humankind's redemption. I'll say that again. Their hatred actually ended up being the catalyst for humankind's redemption. So in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see a great example of God's ability to bring good from evil. Jesus' death, a direct result of his testimony against sin, and the resulting hatred became the divine means to conquer sin and offer salvation to humanity. It's ironic, in a sense, that God uses a weakness for good. All right, so I want to finish up real quickly with a couple ideas, anyway, of uh, the possibilities, why his brothers didn't believe in him and uh, what they were really trying to get him to do. Where In verse 5, <clears throat> where it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Could have been motivated by, uh, by their advice is really a, a challenge for Jesus to prove himself. Their urging might have been less about support for his mission and more about skepticism, expecting him to take a bold step that would either validate uh, his claims in the eyes or expose him in the process. You know, so his brothers are asking him, you know, go on up to Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, another thing that may have been an issue too is remember how this chapter opened up it says, after these things, uh, and then it talks about uh, that he didn't want to uh, go uh, in, into that area anymore, unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. You know, that did his brothers know that? They possibly might not have known about that because obviously Christ knew about it and his apostles knew about it, but did they know about it? It doesn't say. So it could have been, you know, Jesus' uh, re, uh, reluctance to go and confront the Jews at that particular time. So his brothers might have been naive about the danger that really uh, existed. But I think more uh, likely is Jesus has strategic timing. It seems as though his, his brothers were asking for him to go down publicly and you know walk into Jerusalem. You remember how he ends up going into Jerusalem at Passover? It was a grand entrance. And it was the final straw. It was what was going to um, let everybody know that he was the, uh, the king uh, that was coming into Jerusalem. <clears throat> if he would have done that, early at the Feast of Tabernacles would have thrown timing all off. Uh, It would have been, um, uh, which obviously it had, his entrance had to be at Passover to fulfill uh, uh, all prophecies. So he wasn't going to be pushed into it too early. Much like the, um, I think the, the temptations by Satan in the wilderness. Uh, some of those temptations would have proclaimed him to be 
supernatural, like throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple and having float down and gently touch down. Okay, that would have drawn a, a mass of people to him. That would have been against God's timing uh, to have him proclaimed as deity, supernatural in front of everybody. Uh, so that temptation to throw himself off uh, would have been against God's timing. Jesus had to uh, get a base first. He had to get his apostles there. That, that would have been shortcutting God's plan. Just like if he would have went down at his brother's goading, would have been shortcutting God's plan. Uh, would have sent him off, uh, sent him in too early, caused too much of a ruckus. Would have confronted the Pharisees and the uh, uh, Sadducees too early. So what did he do? He went in the side door. Okay, uh, doesn't really say whether he went in under cover, you know, in back of a wagon. But he did not go down to Jerusalem with a lot of fanfare, uh, because that would have been um, would have thrown off his perfect timing. So, anyway, thank you for your attention this morning.